Our New Testament reading today comes from Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him something. And he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit at your right hand and one on your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. And he said to them, You will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called to them and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The grass withers and the flowers fade. Good morning. Do not adjust your sets. Although I share Pastor Jordan's Semitic good looks with our Jewish heritage, um, I am not Pastor Jordan. My name is Matt Tevs, and I was asked to fill the pulpit this final week of Pastor Jordan's vacation. Please do keep him in your prayers, um, as he will be returning shortly. Please turn with me in your copies of Scripture to the book of Psalms, where our text is coming from this morning. And we're going to start by reading Psalm 49, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into the sermon today. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom and the meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of their abundance of their riches? Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die, and the fool and stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling place to all generations, though they are called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve of their boasts. Selah. Like sheep they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Selah, be not afraid when the man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. 
For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed. And though you get praises when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generations of his fathers who will never see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be with us now as we study your word and worship you through it. Father, we ask that you be with uh, our pastor while he continues to be away, be with Maribel, give them rest and relaxation and rejuvenate them for the ministry that you've called them to. In Jesus' name, amen. So on, on Wednesday morning, I was thinking about this passage and I was kicking myself for having chosen it. I've been having difficulty with it, just digging it out. And I'd been working on this psalm for two weeks, and I couldn't seem to get any of my thoughts to gel properly. I couldn't seem to get any of the right words to stay on the page. By Wednesday evening, I felt very differently. I'm grateful to God and in his providence for choosing this passage. I'm grateful, too, that of all the Sundays, I'm humbled that he has called me into the pulpit, pulpit on this one to worship with you. A lot has transpired this past week, hasn't it? I never dreamed of seeing some of the things that I have seen, and we are living history at this point in our republic. A lot is also changing in our churches, in our schools, and in our society in general. And like many of you, I'm, I'm a little bit anxious uh, about our future. My thoughts easily drift to all the things that I wish I had at my disposal right now, including a castle on a hill with big walls. And if I had to guess, I'm sure that there's more than a few of you that would agree with me. Those thoughts, though, those fears, those, those feelings of wanting some kind of control, those are nothing new. And they're staring us in the face in the words of this very psalm that we read together this morning and in the form of the riddle that the psalmist writes. For those of you keeping score at home, I've divided the passage into two main topics. Point number one is going to be the problem or the riddle. And point number two is going to be the answer. And that's going to be how we're going to break things down this morning as we study this chapter. But before we get into that, let's start by looking at the introduction that um, the psalmist writes about right here at the beginning of Psalm 49. So our passage begins with an invitation from the sons of Korah to gather around and listen to a song, a song that presents for us a riddle. There's two phrases that I want to point out to you that are in the introduction that we're going to stick in our pockets and hold on for later, and that's this. If you have your Bibles open or if you're taking notes, take note of these two phrases. The first one The first one is this, all peoples. Right there in verse 1, 
the psalmist invites all peoples and all inhabitants of the world to listen to what they're about to say. This psalm probably would have been sung in the temple. It might be a little bit older. They might have have sung it uh, at the tabernacle, but it was more than likely a temple psalm. And those that are invited to listen aren't just sons of Abraham. He's inviting everyone, even Gentiles. And that's interesting because it reveals something unique. I need a bigger pulpit. (laughs) I'll just put that there for now. It, it, it reveals something unique about the song, that in it there's a message for everyone. So the sons of Korah, they bust out their, li- their liars, a la Bob Dylan, and they're going to lay out a song that is meant to leave you a little bit perplexed. A psalm that has a clear meaning, but it's a little veiled. And even the structure of the psalm makes this a little bit hard to unpack, especially if you are not a first temple-era Jew. So the first temple era was roughly a thousand years ago. It would have been the time of Solomon, maybe a little bit before with King David. And the way the psalmist organizes his thoughts here is called a chiasm. A chiasm is a poetic form where the writer starts first by explaining his thoughts, and then he's building up to make a point, and then he makes the point, And then he re-explains his thoughts using slightly different words. It's kind of like a sandwich. You've got bread, and then you've got meat, and then you've got bread. And it's that stuff in the middle, that meat or the peanut butter and jelly, that, that is what is supposed to stand out when we read it. And it sounds a little bit confusing, but if you look at the psalm in front of you, you can see it taking this chiastic shape. In verses 5 and 6, and then in 16, he talks about feelings of being overwhelmed and afraid, and that's where he reveals the riddle. In 7 through 10, and then 17 through 18, he talks about the devaluation of money in death. In 11 and 19, he talks about the permanence of the grave, or Sheol. And then in 12 and 20, these are almost identical, as he just says that man with his glory and honor still dies like an animal. So if you ever come across across a psalm like this as you're reading through your Bible, it might be kind of confusing at first, but now that you know the trick, you can easily look towards the center of the psalm for the meaning of it. You can look for those repeated words over and over again and go, ah, that's a chiastic form. Now I can read this psalm. And that, my friends, was free. Now let's begin by pulling apart the sandwich, and we're going to take a look at this riddle that the psalmist is talking about. In verses 5 and 6, he writes this. He says, why should I fear in times of trouble? Another translation could be, or days of evil, when the iniquity of those who cheat me surround me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of their abundance of their riches. The psalmist expands on this by describing how the problem is compounded in two ways, and both center around the temporality of life. First, he looks at the false promise of possessions, and then he looks at the permanence of passing. That was hard alliteration to get there, so just bear with me and we'll unpack it and and we'll get through it together. 
First, let's look at the riddle. And this isn't, this isn't a, a, a what's black and white and red all over kind of riddle. It's more of a question. Calvin comments on this verse by saying, this manner of introducing the subject by interrogation is much more emphatic than if he simply asserted his resolution to preserve his mind undisturbed in the midst of adversity. So the psalmist is stating his problem in the form of a question for a point of emphasis to show how resolute he is in his time of trouble. The psalmist is saying something that I think every single one of us can lean into during this time of political and social and medical uncertainty. He's calling God's people to remain steadfast even in times of distress, even when your very life is at stake. Sometimes when we're translating from Hebrew into English, we're not able to unpack all the flavors surrounding the original language. And here, I think, um, in the English, it's lost just a little. When he says, why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? When he says, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. And then in verse 17, he says, for when he dies, he will carry away nothing. His glory will not go down after him. That verbiage that's used in the original language here, he's describing something that, that's pretty serious. Essentially, what he's saying is, I'm surrounded by my enemies, and these people want to kill me. These people want to destroy me. This isn't just, you know, like smack talk or business talk. You know, we're going to crush the competition this quarter, guys. It's not that. This is straight up, his life is on the line. And what he's doing here is he's making a comparison. Is he's showing us the difference between one facing death as a child of God while his enemies are facing the very same end, and we'll unpack this as we go, but they're reckoning with their end in the absence of God in a very secular way. I think, though, starting off as we unpack this, we need to make sure that there's... a a clarification about what the psalmist is saying here. I don't think that he's saying that, that it's sinful to have an abundance. There's nothing wrong with wealth. There's examples throughout scripture of very godly people who the Lord blessed with wealth. If you start by looking at the patriarchs, they weren't hurting. Look at, look at uh, King David and King Solomon. And even in the New Testament, uh, Lydia of Thyatira, the seller of purple. She was very wealthy and she used her means as all these people did to the glory of God. The writer isn't objecting to wealth, but what he's doing is he's laying bare the, the, the thought, the false promise of possessions. The problem isn't having, the problem is having an unhealthy relationship with what you think is your security. You don't even need an abundance to do that. When faced with the end of life, which is something that we will all face, it's something universal, 
It's something that even the animal kingdom and the, the plant kingdom have to face. There isn't enough money to buy your way out of the grave. Solomon in all of his splendor is still dead. Nor is it any good to bring that wealth with you. Think about Egyptian mummies, Chinese graves, the Taj Mahal, that's a mausoleum. You can't take it with you. It's in a moment like this that all is laid bare and we really see the truth of our souls, of what really matters. Before we get to that day, let's think about these questions. Let's think about where we put our security. Do you put it in the stability of governments? Do you put it in the return on your investments? Do you put your security in the success of your children or in your status at work? All these things are really important and should not be left on autopilot. However, our faith needs to impact how we live and what we value. The book of James makes that point over and over again. So does the first question in our catechism that we went over last week that says, what is our hope in life and death? And the answer is that, our, um, that we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. What an important question to have to answer because everything else, your entire philosophy of life, will flow from, from that. And as children of God, we rest in the Lord because we are his. And that's security. Now remember, the writer here is working out a, com a comparison between facing death as a child of God or of one of the sons of earth. And we just look at the false promise of possessions. And as the writer is still building his point, we're going to go to the next theme that he talks about here as, as he talks about the permanence of passing. He's talking about death. And he's talking about this notion of Sheol. And we find that word throughout this psalm. Different cultures have different views of death. And here in Western culture, as our art and our literature bear testament to, death is a punctiliar event that propels us into some form of afterlife. And if you think about it, think about the way we euphemize death, right? We say things like, oh, he's passed on. Or um, what was the other one I was thinking of? Or he's gone on. Where is he gone? Where has he passed on to? Well, he's gone on and passed on to some form of afterlife. Look with me at verse 14. We can see here in verse 14 that in the Semitic mind, this word sheol, it's a loaded term. It means a lot of different things. And even throughout the context of the psalm, it kind of shifts and changes. Sheol is kind of like the Hawaiian word aloha. There's lots of nuance, but it's the same in essence. 
Sheol can be used as a state of being, as in the grave. It can also be used to describe a place of darkness and ash, kind of like a desert afterlife. It's even been used to describe an afterlife, like at the bottom of the ocean. Conversely, it's also described as the bosom of Abraham, as a place of comfort and rest. Just think about the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Remember? They both die. They both go to Sheol. But Lazarus goes on to the bosom of Abraham. The rich man, he goes to Sheol. They're in the same place. Remember, they're talking back and forth to one another. But there is a great chasm that separates them. Sheol is a very loaded term. Lots of nuance. But there's two truths that I want you to see here about Sheol. The first one is this. Just like with Lazarus and the rich man, the righteous and the unrighteous both go to Sheol. And as our text describes even, it doesn't matter if you're wise or foolish. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, high or low, loved or reviled. We all wind up in the grave. And the second point that I want to make here is that no one gets out. Sheol is a place of permanence. This sounds like a curse, doesn't it? It is. Paul writes to the Romans that the wages of sin is death. Death is the curse of our sinfulness and rebellion against God that took place in the garden. Death is God's promise to us as a reminder of our station as the creation. When Adam and Eve tried to elevate themselves to the same level as their creator, it is a permanent reminder of this truth that God is in control. That's the bad news but there's good news to come. The psalmist has laid out this riddle, or rather it's his resolution, that he's not going to fear, even though he's facing the end of us all. He's facing death. He will not fear, as opposed to those around him who put their security in fallacy. He will not fear. Why? We finally made it. The answer to the riddle. Look at verse 15. This is why. God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. And this is the good news. This is why the psalm is so great, because this is a gospel psalm. This is a psalm about redemption. The mystery of the gospel is this it is that for the Jew and the Gentile, it's the same. The gospel is the good news that Jesus conquered death. Although promised to Eve in the garden and made manifest through the patriarchs, delivered through the Jewish people in the person of the Messiah, the mystery of the gospel is that it wasn't meant only for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. We have been grafted into the branch of Abraham. We are spiritual heirs of the redemption of Jesus. This is why at the beginning of the psalm, the invitation goes out to all the world. It goes out to everybody. All the world will experience the glory of God in the complete work of the redemption 
that took place on the cross. The permanence of Sheol was shattered by Jesus. At the resurrection, he broke the gates, proclaiming, death, where is your sting? As he crushed the curse and breaks Sheol wide open. The currency of this fallen world can't bring forth life from death. But the ransom that is worthy unto God is paid for by the life and blood of a perfect lamb. The true lamb of God was Jesus who took away the sins of the world. He was the second Adam that lived the life of perfection, fulfilling the requirement for a suitable sacrifice that would satisfy God's wrath for our sin. And that's why there's no fear when we confront death because our loving savior lifts us out of the penalty of sin by taking it on himself and brings us into eternal life where we will be worshiping him forever. Jesus broke the permanence of Sheol. There is nothing to fear if we submit ourselves to God's good and perfect will in the Messiah Jesus. It doesn't mean that we won't face trouble. It doesn't mean that in our humanity we won't be afraid. It means that when we do feel these feelings of trouble and of fear, we can face it with hope and confidence, knowing that the outcome is in the hands of our loving creator. One of the things that I found most remarkable about this psalm is that this psalm was sung by the sons of Korah. Do you know who the sons of Korah are? The sons of Korah are so much more than just being the original Jewish boy band. Thank you for that courtesy laugh. I thought it was hysterical. There were three tribes, uh, there were three clans in the tribe of Levi. And you remember that Levi is the priestly tribe, right? They were in charge of, before the temple, they were in charge of the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was this tent that the Jews slept around with them in the wilderness. It was the place that God dwelt with them, hence the name tabernacle. And these, these three clans, they were called Merari, Gershon, and Kohath. They all had different parts of responsibility. Korah, who these sons are named of, was a Kohathite. And the Kohathites were in charge of all of the implements of the temple, the table, the lampstand, the very Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat of God. Well, Korah, the Kohathite, who was also the grandson of Kohath, he got involved in an act of rebellion against Moses. And God put these rebels to the test. If God was with them, they would prevail. But if God was with Moses, Moses would prevail and continue to lead the, lead the people. The Lord commanded Moses to have these rebels go stand out in front of their own tents. And God was going to pass his judgment. And in Numbers 16, this is what we read. This is how God passed his judgment. 
The word of the Lord says that the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished in the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry. And they said, lest the earth swallow us up. Could you imagine that scene of just standing there and seeing the earth open and then close over these people? But in Numbers 26, we find out that the Lord had preserved Korah's children. These sons of Korah went on to be the doorkeepers of the tabernacle, kind of like a a small security force. Some of them even fought valiantly with King David, and David was the one who elevated them in terms of of temple worship and put them in charge of, of the choir and the music. So these people, these sons of Korah, would go in front of any procession proclaiming God's greatness leading them in worship, leading the entire nation of Israel in worship. Remember our psalm here. Remember the 15th verse. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Knowing what we know now about the sons of Korah, that gives that line a whole lot more weight, doesn't it? This preservation from judgment was something palpable to the sons of Korah. They had firsthand experience of God's mercy and grace, just like we do in Christ Jesus. Understanding that we, in our sinfulness, deserve the fate of Korah for our sin, but instead have received grace and redemption, should give us all hearts of praise and comfort in these times of trouble, in these days of evil. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have opened the gates of Sheol through the blood of your Son. Father, we ask that as we go from this place today, although this is a message that we've probably heard hundreds, if not thousands of times before, We ask, Lord, that you keep this at the forefront of our minds as we engage with our culture, as we engage with our politics, as we engage with our families. Father, help us to rest in you, to find our security in you, to be beacons of hope and peace that your gospel may go forth, and that your truth may be proclaimed to all in the earth. In Jesus' name.